We continue to read from 1 John chapter 4, and beginning, uh, sorry, 1 John chapter 4, and starting at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also, are we in this world. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen. How can we change the world? Will that happen through politics, through a revolution, through technology, through education, or war, or data? Now, what changes people and the world is telling a better story. And the gospel tells a story of transforming love. The gospel says that God has made all, that he has given all for you, that he died for you, and that he is returning for you because he loves you. And John's point in chapter 4 is that we are transformed by the love of God, and we find that love in the gospel of Jesus. I wonder if you could turn there to those first six verses. And what we see here is that God's love revealed in the gospel is tried, tested, and true. I don't know whether you caught the drama series Line of Duty. One of the iconic lines from Ted Hastings in there was, I didn't float up the lagoon in a bubble. And if you're from Northern Ireland, you'll know exactly what he's saying. If you're not, you'll probably not at all understand what it means. It basically is a long-winded way of saying, I'm not stupid. I'm not just going to believe any old tale just because you've told me it. It needs proving. And John is concerned here that these believers think about what they hear, that they test it. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. They need to wake up and switch on, because not everything that everyone says is true. In fact, he says, many false prophets have gone out into the world. And the word he uses is, in, is interesting. In the original language, it is pseudo-prophete. They're not just wrong, they're imposters. They pose as prophets, but they are not. But they're not so easily discerned. Do not believe every spirit. But how do we tell an imposter teacher? Well, look at verse 2 and 3, because now he starts to show us how we might discern that. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. There's one idea. There's a Spirit of God. There's a true prophetic message. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. There's a spirit of God and there are many spirits of the Antichrist. And we said before, and it's worth reminding again, just exactly what it is that these false teachers are proclaiming. And John very much has in his sights this same set of false teachers that he's been targeting all the way through. And of course, like many great pieces of false teaching, 
it has a part to it that's convincing because they're not denying that Jesus ever came. That's not their message. Their message is more subtle, it's more nuanced than that. They're not denying that Jesus didn't come to earth. They're denying his full humanity. And what they're doing instead is they're saying, no, no, Jesus wasn't in and of himself completely human. He couldn't be because human matter, in fact, all material is bad. Spirit alone is good. What the best thing that we can hope for in life is to push a jet on the world and become disembodied spirits. That's the goal. And here's the irony. That looked exactly like Roman philosophy at the time. You could read the works of Plato and his followers. It's exactly the same, just with a veneer of God on the top of it. That was their message. And so the idea was that, well, yes, the spirit of Christ met this human Jesus of Nazareth. And in that moment when he was then perfected, then we could say that, yes, God and human are connected. But the gospel says, no, no, it's far greater than that. It's God himself actually limits himself from the very beginning of Jesus' earthly life to be in a body. The God who could not be imaged contained in a human being. What humility. The God who is simply known before but by the fact that you can't know me, you can't see me, you can't get your head around me. Now contained. And the Greek here in verse 4 is a reassurance. Begins with a statement, in fact, The English makes more sense, the way it's been translated, but the Greek tells us a bit more what John was trying to do. In the original language here, John is saying, you from God are. And thankfully, that's been translated differently in the English, because it sounds a bit like Yoda's speaking to us, doesn't it? You from God are. But what it's saying is, that. do you notice the emphasis? You are from God. That is, you believers who have held to the gospel message who have not left the church, have not followed these false teachers, you are from God. You are. And you have overcome them. Who is them? That's the false teachers, isn't it? You have overcome them. Those who feel they are so superior and are so quick to tell everyone. Wants to reassure these believers, you have no need to feel inferior to them. But notice how he says they've overcome them. This is important. He says in verse 4 there, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And there is, as we've said before so many times with this first letter of John, there is a background in his gospel to what he's saying here. In chapter 16, verse 33 of John's gospel, he says, this is Jesus speaking, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus overcame the world, and now we overcome the world by his presence in us through his spirit. Again, in John chapter 16 here, he says a bit earlier on, when the spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
he will glorify me. That's Jesus speaking. The Spirit will glorify Jesus. That's one of the telltale ways that you'll know whether it's the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Antichrist. Is it exalting, first and foremost, Jesus? He will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so the confidence in the authenticity of their faith and our faith should not be in our level of passion or our performance, but in the presence of God in us. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And verse 4 implied a shock that's made explicit in verse 5. Do you see it? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You've overcome them. Look at verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. The they is these false teachers. They are from the world. These false teachers, these spiritual snobs, we've said loosely, you could sort of term them as Gnostics, but that's a tricky term because it means different things at different times in different places but loosely that's what would organize their system of thought highly religious highly disciplined feel superior they've left the church they don't need the church and now John says they are from the world and what he means to say in saying that and it's a very challenging statement that he makes is they are unbelievers they have departed the faith because they are now from the world They're from the world that John earlier on has told us not to love. Chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And we said that is a binary choice. It is one or other. You cannot love the world and God. You cannot love God and the world. It's not possible. Don't love the world. He said, verse 16, that the values of the world lead us to sin. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And he said that the world is passing away. Verse 17, the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. They speak, though, from the world, he says. They use the same categories and have the same values and priorities as the world. The gospel that they preach is the world's gospel. Therefore, he says, the world listens to them. The world listens to them because they're saying the same thing. They're not saying anything different. And in this case, it's a message that is anti-church, it is anti-Christ, it is anti-scripture, anti-Christian, anti-human, and anti-material. And it leaves us with a challenging thought, I think, doesn't it? On the one hand, and on the other, an encouragement. Because if the world isn't listening to you, maybe you might need to take heart. Be encouraged. That might be simply because you are not speaking the same gospel as the world. And if the world is listening to you, then there's a challenge. 
because I think you might want to be a bit concerned. Is what I'm saying any different to the world? Is that why this is so comfortable? Should it be so comfortable? I think John would say, no. No, it shouldn't. There should be a clear difference in our message. They are from the world. And so there's a contrast, a reassurance for these believers and a clear challenge to the false teachers. Because look at what he goes on to say here. Verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We are from God. And by that, John means himself and the apostles and those who hold to their teaching in just the same way that he launched off the letter with a statement like that, that we have seen, we have heard, we have touched. That's not all of them. That's John and the apostles, the people who are physically there with Jesus. And his whole point is to say, we are eyewitnesses. What we're telling you is an eyewitness statement. This isn't some rambling, personal, individualized encounter with the spirit that we're sort of presenting to you. We're telling you about the Jesus that we lived with, we ate with, we walked with, we touched, we heard speak to us. We are from God. The false teachers are aligned with the world, but the apostles are aligned with God. And whoever listens, uh, whoever knows God, sorry, listens to us. By extension, not the false teachers. They listen to us and our gospel not the false teachers. See, because you can't claim the name of Christ and shun the apostles' message. You're deluding yourself, as John has said earlier. You're at best deluding yourself, at worst lying. Whoever knows God listens to us, not the world. Whoever isn't from God doesn't listen to us. You must then believe the apostles, not the false teachers. And so you can tell a follower of Christ by whether they trust the gospel message. As it's put in other places, the apostles' teaching in Acts. And by this we know, he says, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And this tells us that back in verse 1 there, don't believe every spirit, test the spirits. John wasn't talking about some sort of flouncy, vague demonology as sometimes this text is completely butchered to do. He's speaking very clearly about a specific issue in this place, a spirit of truth, a spirit of error, a false teaching and a true teaching, the gospel and the teaching of the Gnostics. There is but one way to understand God, that is through the gospel, not these false teachers. And the gospel proves itself to be tried tested and true don't believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God the gospel is tried tested and true but then we're introduced to God's transforming love our movies are full of the idea of redemption coming through transforming love just a few examples think of beauty and the beast terrible beast who can only possibly have the curse sort of lifted once he finds true love 
Or in the old Snow White film, she's redeemed by the love of a good prince who rescues and protects her from an evil stepmother. Or in Shrek, only true love's kiss will free Fiona from the curse of being an ogre. It's everywhere. But John's idea here is that God's love for us has a transforming effect on us. See, because the correct response to verses 1 to 6 is verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And again, in the original language, this point would be driven home even more because it begins, agapatoi agapatomen, beloved, we should love. Those who've received love should express love. And he has four reasons there. Let us love one another, for love is from God, firstly. Secondly, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. You should love because it simply is part of his character and nature. How can you possibly lay claim to knowing the God who is love if you don't love yourself? Love because it's from him, because it shows you're born of God, because it shows you know him, and because he himself is love. And then we have two ways in which love is made clear. John has done this in other chapters, but he does it again for us here. Look at verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. We said before the idea is that he's, the, the love of God is made clear, is made graspable. Because love needs defining. It's not obvious. It needs explaining. And it is made clear, it's made graspable in these ways. He's done it previously, 1 John 3, verse 16. By this we know, love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So that here the definition, the picture of what love really looks like is encapsulated in the cross of Christ. And there, God himself takes on human weakness and frailty and lives the life that we should have lived and dies in our place for our sin, that our sin may be dealt with, and that we may be set free. And now he gives two further ways in which the love of God, and love in general, is to be defined in the work of Jesus. Look at verse 9 there. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Here's the first way. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is about what love does, isn't it? That's God doing something, that God lets go of his son so that we could become his children. And how do we find that life through Jesus? Well, verse 10 completes that sort of thought, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That sin requires blood, And Jesus, though perfect, offered his blood to meet God's justice and to save our blood being spilt. We see what love does. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. But there's a second idea, and this is love. Introduced in the same way. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. 
And this is about when love started. That first statement is about what love does, that he sent his son into the world for us, that we might live. This is about when love started. It's not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And that he loves us not because we love him. He loved us before we loved him. He doesn't love us because we're lovable. We weren't. He's loved us when we didn't love him. And despite us not being lovable. Just because. And that is really, really significant. Because what that means is that God's love is secure and unchanging because it is not linked to our performance, but to his nature and his choice. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And there's a repeat there really of verse 7, isn't there? That love for each other is the appropriate response to the love of God for us. But then John introduces a new idea right at the end of this paragraph. Do you notice it? Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Love expressed amongst Christians reveals the love of God for us. And John introduces, again, another idea that he's introduced in his gospel before. John chapter 1, verse 18, he said of Jesus, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. And there, the idea is that Jesus has made a previously unseen God seen through his incarnation, through his taking on flesh. Here, the idea is that a loving Christian community makes a previously unseen God seen in the world. In a way, verse 8 is quite negative, isn't it? Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God because God is love. But you could put it in a positive way, and in a way that's what verse 12 does. If we do love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If you have met the transformative power of God's love, you will live it out. How do we do that, though? How do we achieve that? Do we have to just work harder? You have to sort of just try and drum up some deeper feelings? Well, no, John reassures us, doesn't he? Look at the end of verse 12. God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. God does it. David Jackman writes in his commentary, Those who have been forgiven will demonstrate this revolutionary change at the heart of their life by a new love for one another. God's love supplies both the reason and the resources. He doesn't just give you the reason to love one another. He also gives you the ability to do it because he is present in us through his spirit. And so John again calls us to love one another because of how God has loved us and by looking to that love. God's love is transforming. And then thirdly, we're given a loving assurance. 
You know, whether you've ever caught the movie Jerry Maguire, well, it's a kind of romantic drama, and as we're sort of coming towards the end of it, the characters are both needing assurance of one another's feelings, and so it builds up to this big sort of momentous sort of point, and uh, Jerry declares, oh, I love you, you complete me. To which he's met with, shut up, you had me at hello. And it's completely over the top, and no one can ever do that for you. And in fact, if you try to expect that from another, you will simply crush them under the weight of that unrealistic expectation. The only love that can complete you comes from God. But we sometimes need a reassurance. And they both certainly did there. And John here gives his readers and us a reassurance. And there's four things from verse 13 to 16 that he gives as a reassurance. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. Verse 13. That's the first reassurance. We know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. But we might well ask another question. How can we tell the spirit is present in us? That's something we need to answer, isn't it? What does that actually really mean? What does that really look like? How do I know whether that's me? What is the work of the Spirit? Well, first notice what John doesn't say. Because John does not point to spiritual gifts, does he? That is really important and significant. That's not the evidence of the Spirit within you. In fact, listen to Jesus' teaching on this, Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Spiritual gifts are no evidence of the Spirit's work within you. They're every bit as possible to be reproduced without any of the Holy Spirit's work. So what is the work of the Spirit then? Well, again, back in John chapter 16, John has given some teaching on that from the Lord Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says here. John chapter 16, verse 8. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. There's a ministry and a work of the Holy Spirit in the world. You see it and you hear it there, that it's the spirit that convicts of sin, convicts of righteousness, convicts of judgment. You could put it, perhaps, more in everyday language, that the spirit gives gospel message its power. It makes it actually work within people. But there's also a ministry in the church, in the body. Verse 13 says, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. 
Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see the things that it says the Spirit will do there? He will guide you into all the truth. Whatever he hears from me, he'll speak. He'll declare to you the things that are to come, that he'll glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. How do you feel and do you sense, do you know and experience that God through the Holy Spirit is guiding you to the truth? That the words of Christ being impressed upon you as you read his word? That he's being glorified within your heart? Well, then you can be sure that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. That is a sure and a certain test of the Spirit's work in your life. Spiritual gifts, not so much. First reassurance is the Spirit. Second is the Gospel. Look at verse 14 there. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. There is the Apostles' Gospel. The gospel of Jesus is about an eyewitness account we have seen and we testify to you. There's the presence of the Spirit. There's a trust in the gospel. Thirdly, there's a confession of faith, isn't there? Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And the confession presumes that there's an audience it's this idea of calling on Christ in the public forum. Do you experience the Spirit's work within you? Do you hold to the gospel the apostles preached? Do you happily confess the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, then the fourth reassurance is love. Look at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him we've come to know or that is to experience and to believe the love that God has for us and the reality is in fact actually you can only truly love others after you first come to experience the love of God for you and to believe that but there's four reassurances there isn't there the work of the spirit in you holding to the gospel confessing Christ living in love in verses 17 to 19, we see how love is perfected in the believer. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. John is concerned that they have confidence for the day of Jesus' return. He's spoken about that before, back in chapter 2, verse 28. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. God's love should lead to peace, not punishment. God's love will lead to that sense of peace and not expectation of punishment when you remember and remind yourself that it is not pegged to your performance or appearance, but on God's nature and his choice and his work. John Calvin summarizes this idea here. He says, the sum of it is that there is nothing worse than being worried by continual disquiet. And we arrive at a calm rest outside fear by being aware of God's love towards us. 
We love because he first loved us, John says, much like verse 10. We do love God, of course, don't we? As believers, as followers of Christ, we do now love God. But we can only love God because he has loved us and saved us already. And so John concludes in verses 20 to 21 here, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who doesn't love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you see the contrast there? He who doesn't love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love a God whom he's not really seen. It's not possible. It's a delusion, isn't it? So he finishes up there with that repeated command to love one another. But John is giving us here, firstly, a loving assurance of God's love for us. And those four marks of genuine faith to hold on to. Work of the Spirit, gospel, confession of faith and love for one another. John's message here is that the love of God is a transforming love. It should change the way that we are, how we think, how we feel, how we speak, how we act. But I want to leave you with three brief encouragements as we come to a close. Firstly, the gospel is tried, tested, and true. Verse 6 said, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The world is full of stories, of origin, of meaning, of worth, of purpose, of destiny, of identity. But there is only one story that comes from God. And there is only one story that is true overall, and that is the gospel. And where do we find that? We find it in the words of Christ and his apostles in his word. Nowhere else. The gospel is tried, tested and true. Secondly, God's love transforms us. Verse 19 told us, we love because he first loved us. We are able now to love one another in the world and so therefore show God in the world. God's love is given to us by him without us deserving it and before we ever loved him but now we can actually love one another because God has chosen to love those who didn't love him yet first God's love transforms us we love because he first loved us and then thirdly God's love isn't going anywhere verse 10 in this is love not that we've loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins we can have a confident assurance of our standing with God because it is based on him, not on us. His love isn't going anywhere because it's not dependent on our appearance or our performance. He has loved us and he has done all that could ever be done for us in the giving of his son. And so the route to loving one another better isn't self-motivation, self-discipline, self-flagellation. It is abiding in the message of the gospel and receiving and abiding in the love of God revealed within it. It is an old message, to borrow John's words. It is the message you've heard from the beginning. 
It is the word of God revealed in the Bible for us. Hold to the word and be transformed by the love of God revealed therein. Let's pray and then we'll sing a closing song together.